through Romans chapter 11. We'll be in Romans 11, 33 to 36. If you have some anxiety this morning about why we have only sang two songs, hold on. <laughs> We're going to sing. <laughs> We're going to set our gaze upon the Lord. And after we do that, after we hear Paul rejoice and worship God for his great works, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to sing and we're going to sing. So just hold on. In 2012, I attended what was perhaps, and I, I would say one of the best basketball games in the last 10 years at Rupp Arena. It was the contest between UNC and UK, both, depending on who you spoke to, were the odds-on favorite to win the national championship that year. So they can't, came in, they weren't ranked number one and number two at the time, but everyone knew it was going to be one of them to cut the nets down at the end of the year. And so I went up to Rupp uh, with a friend and, and we watched the game. And that game was intense. It was absolutely intense. And the whole game just kept climbing and climbing and climbing in intensity as these two heavyweights of college basketball traded blows. And and it, one moment it would swing one way and one moment the other. And, of course, you know I was in the minority there and the crowd was just passionate about your Wildcats. It came down to the end and you know what happened. Most of you in here know what happened and you love it, right? John Henson takes a shot from the elbow and what happens? Anthony Davis and those freakishly long arms block it. Right, His fingers are as long as my arms, I think. And he blocks the shot. And in that moment, you know, everybody was cheering up to that moment. I was yelling. Everybody was yelling. And in that moment, when that shot was blocked and the horn sound, the majority of Rupp Arena erupted in a deafening cheer, a, a burst of excitement and celebration. Every UK fan in there was on their feet yelling as loud as they could possibly yell. The UK players were going crazy. On the other side, every Carolina fan, myself included, just stood there. Just stood there. I stood there. I think if I remember, I just shaking my head. Both of those responses were absolutely appropriate. The UNC fan had everything to be disappointed about, everything to shake his head about, everything to sit in silence about but the UK fan had everything to rejoice in and to be excited about and to shout about appropriate responses to what had happened we come this morning to Romans 11 33 to 36 and we see Paul's very appropriate response to everything he's talked about he, he's leading up to this point and and the intensity and the book of Romans has just climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed until he rejoices in verse 33 and rejoices in who God is and what God's done. And as you read through Romans, you, you have to imagine that, that the Jews of Paul's day and even Jews of our present day, when they read Romans, are staggered to find that, that their standing before the Lord is just the same as the standing of Gentiles such as you and I. That they stand in need of God's grace. They stand as fallen sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. And they stand in need of Christ to save them. 
And you can imagine, just like many of us, that, that Gentiles rejoice in the truth that they've been grafted in to the tree. That God has done a great work in them by His grace to graft them in to be among His people. Men through the ages have read Romans, and as they read Romans, they're, they're shocked by the reality that our works can't save us. Nothing we can do can earn salvation, but we are held to God's righteous standard, which is only met in Christ. And that righteousness is not obtained by anything that we can do. But perhaps the place where the intensity rises the most is when Paul gets to Romans 9 through 11. When he starts talking about God's might and God's power and God's sovereign choice. And we read about God's work and salvation and we learn that we did not earn it, we did not plan it, we did not initiate it, we did not determine it. God is God and we are not. And we step back and some people, that leaves them staggering. Some people go, I just don't want to read that anymore. I can't wrap my head around it. How does that work? How does God's sovereignty and man's free moral agency, how do those things work? How do they coexist? How does that mystery work out? And we're reminded of what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 55. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and we are not. And so when Paul beholds this and he looks and he sees all that the spirit has led him to write to his people in rome paul bursts forth and prays and he says oh oh what a great god we serve and that is the absolute appropriate response why because right theology should always lead to praise in doxology which should then lead us to what some have called duology we see that in Romans. We see Romans 1, 1, 1 through eleven thirty two. the theology portion lead into doxology, the worship, the praising portion in eleven thirty three to 36, our text for today. And then what we'll see in the coming weeks is that moment of praise leads Paul into saying, how do we praise God and how we live? How do we worship God and how we live? And Romans 12, 1 through 16, 27 is where Paul will work that out. And so we come today to the transition of Paul's letter to the Romans. Let's read verses 33 to 36 together. Paul bursts forth. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When Paul starts here in verse 33, when he says, Oh, this is him bursting forth in praise. It's that, that moment when, when you see something that makes the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up it makes your skin kind of tingle it leaves you standing in awe you're speechless you just stand up when perhaps you raise your arms you don't know all you know is that amazement has struck you awe is upon you and you stand speechless 
And Paul has hit that point when he's worked through the theology, he's worked through God's grace and that we are justified by, by faith alone, through Christ alone, by his grace alone. And he works through what this means for the Jews and the Gentiles and what that looks like. And he stands in awe. And what is he in awe of? He's in awe of the riches, the knowledge, and the wisdom of our God. That's what he's in awe of. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, depending on the translation you have, you see that this can be handled a couple different ways. The NIV and the New American Standard group it and handle it by saying the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God so so they would interpret it and see that the riches describe the wisdom and the knowledge of God the ESV if you have an ESV says the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that that Paul is rejoicing in in those three distinct features in in God's riches and God's knowledge and God's wisdom and, and the text, honestly, in the Greek, you can just go either way. There's not one definite way you have to land. And to be honest with you, it doesn't necessarily determine how you fall and what it means. The bottom line is that, that Paul is rejoicing in God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. He's rejoicing in the fact that God has revealed His sovereignty and His plan for salvation. And it leaves Paul in awe-filled wonder of what a great and an awesome God we serve. And particularly, he expresses what? He expresses awe over the depth of those things. The depth of God's riches, the depth of God's knowledge, the depth of God's wisdom. See, these are, these are known as communicable attributes of God. The, the attributes of God, the, the things that make God who he is, can be broken up into communicable, incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes would be something like the fact that he is eternal. We can't wrap our minds around that. We have nothing like that that we can identify with. A communicable attribute is something that we can relate to, identify with, that God is loving. We are loving. But our love is limited. God's, God's is unlimited. And so these are communicable attributes. Some attributes that we can, we can kind of wrap our mind around partially. That God, there's riches in God. There is wisdom in God. There is knowledge in God. But Paul's led to rejoice in the depth of them. That there, it is this unending cavern, this abyss that you can't reach the bottom of. You dive in and you just keep falling and falling and falling and falling into the riches, the knowledge, and the wisdom of God. Our riches, our wisdom, our knowledge are limited they are hindered in some way. God's riches, God's knowledge, God's wisdom are unlimited, unhindered, never-ending. Great and awesome is He. He is rich in wisdom and knowledge, and we worship Him because He is abounding in grace. So let's look at those three things for just a moment. Let's consider what the Word says about these three attributes of God that causes Paul to be filled with wonder, to burst forth in praise when he considers God's work and salvation. And he says, oh... Oh, the depth of his riches. Oh, the depth of his riches of both the knowledge and the wisdom of our God. The riches of God is God saving us in Christ. That's what Paul's thinking of here. It's the, the riches of his mercy and his grace. It's what he talked about in Ephesians 1, verse 7 through 8. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to... The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
God has lavished his grace upon us, and he calls it the riches of his grace. What is that riches of grace? It's seen in the redemption through the blood of Christ that brought forgiveness of our sins. That's the riches of God's grace. That's the riches that Paul rejoices in. It's the same word that he used in Romans 2.4 when he wrote the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, which is meant to do what? To lead us to repentance. See, the God, the God that we worship is rich in grace, rich in mercy. His kindness, forbearance, and patience should lead us to worship Him and to find peace and rest and reconciliation in Christ. We read again in Romans 9, 23, when, when, when Paul's talking about God's choice and salvation, that it was made in order to, he says, make known the riches of His glory for vessels of glory, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. The riches, the beauty, the bounty of the Lord. It is the riches of God that we have inherited through His adoption of us as sons and daughters. It's the riches of His mercy, the riches of eternal life in Christ for all who believe. So we rejoice in the riches of God, but we also rejoice and stand in awe of God's wisdom. God's wisdom. It's the wisdom of God that, that baffles man. It makes the wisdom of the world seem foolish. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Just a few pages over in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Turn with me just for a moment there, if you would. We're going to read a, a portion because when we think about God's wisdom, this is an incredible passage. Talking about God's wisdom. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for the word of the cross, this is 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God's wisdom is beyond our wisdom. It baffles, it confounds the wisdom of man. What man would say, oh, that's foolishness. God says, no, this is wise. You see, the wisdom of man would say, you can do enough to earn your salvation. You can be good enough, but the wisdom of God says, no, you can't. 
There is no amount of deeds that can earn your salvation. There is no amount of being a good person that can erase your sin. It is only erased. Your sin is only paid for by Christ and Christ alone. The wisdom of man would say that, you know what, I can pad my life. I can, I can put enough comfort, enough bubble wrap around my life to protect me from calamity. I can insulate my life and get myself in such a spot that I can avoid tragedy. And God says, oh no, that's the wisdom of man. The truth is that it rains on both the righteous and the unrighteousness. And you better build your life upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of man says that the wise and the powerful and the wealthy are supreme. The wisdom of God says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And salvation comes to all men through Jesus Christ. And it is not based on prestige, it is not based on power, but it is based on faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, the wisdom of man is lacking. The wisdom of man is limited. God's wisdom is perfect and expansive and holy and infinite. And we stand in awe of his great wisdom. We also consider his knowledge. And we look at his knowledge and we just step back in in amazement that we think we know We think we know what we need. We think we know what we want. But God truly knows man's genuine need. Just think about the saints of old. Abraham thought he needed to lie in order to protect himself and Sarah. Yet he was following the God who protected Daniel from lions. And then you have the spies who thought they just knew the armies of the Canaanites were too great. When they were actually serving and following the God of, God of angel armies. The hosts of heaven follow after him. But they were intimidated by the Canaanites. And they knew they were too great. Or consider the Israelites. They just knew that they needed a king. When all the while they were already under the king of kings. Or consider the Jews who knew that a righteousness could be achieved on their own according to the law. When actually the only righteousness that they needed and that they could obtain only came through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that is revealed in Christ through faith to all who believe. Oh, the depth of God's knowledge. Man thinks he knows. I think I know. You think you know. But we don't. Because we are limited in knowledge and God is not. He is great and mighty and awesome and expansive in knowledge. Oh, the depth of his knowledge. Oh, the depth of his wisdom. Oh, the depth of his riches. And so Paul then says, how unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable are his ways. They're difficult to understand. They're they're difficult to trace. God's decisions and actions are beyond us. Is there anyone in here? Who would read Romans 9 through 11 and not go, wow, how untraceable, unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, his decisions, his actions are beyond us. That's why Paul looks and he asks the question, he says, who are you to question, O man? Is not God the potter? Are you not the clay? Can the clay really look and speak and say, what God, are you sure about this? We cannot fully understand all that God has done, is doing 
or will do because we are the clay, he is the potter. And that should not be cause for our faith to weaken, but cause for our faith to increase because we did not create God, God created us. We will never comprehend all that God is, all that God can do, and all that God plans because we didn't make God. God is greater than us, and God is one who is awesome and powerful and beyond us, and we praise and we adore Him. And I'm thankful that His ways are not my ways. I'm thankful that His ways are not your ways, because we would be in a world of trouble. And I find great comfort in this. And I think you should too, that we would find comfort in knowing the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God in saving us from our sins. Comfort that it does not depend upon us comfort to know that we worship a God far beyond who we are comfort to know that he is good he is sovereign he is wise and he is carrying his plans out just as he purposed to do there is great comfort in that today so we need not live in anxiety we need not live worried about the future but we live in comfort and rest in our great and awesome God and so that brings Paul to ask three very humbling questions. Three questions that, that just confront our pride. Because I'm guessing you're like me. You wrestle with pride. It is something that is there and you want to get it. You want to understand it. You want to comprehend all that God is. And Paul just reminds us. He says, listen, lest you remain proud, let me ask you three questions Lest you remain in this idea that you can get all that God is, that you can wrap your mind around all who He is, let me ask you three questions. It's the same thing that, that Job does, or God does to Job. Let, let's turn there for a moment. Job 38. Hear, hear what God does. Remember Job? Job has all these questions. That his friends give answers. They're not good answers. They give bad advice about what's going on in Job's life, why tragedy has come upon him. And Job rebuts all those answers, all those replies, and he calls upon God to answer. Elihu, the fourth friend, it says he's angered towards the friends and towards Job because why Job tried to justify himself and not God. <laughs> and so finally, in the end, in Job 38, we come to the passage where the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, listen to what he said. We won't read all of God's answer because it goes all the way to chapter 42. All right? But just get a sense of how God deals with Job. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its path? 
that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is upheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. God continues on. We, again, he, he says, well, have you entered into the springs of the sea in verse 16? Verse 19, where is the way of the dwelling of light? Have you entered the storehouses of snow, he asks. Who has a cleft of channel for the torrents of rain, he asks. Has the rain a father who has begotten the drops of dew, he asks. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Do you give the horse his might? (laughs) Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? He says again in verse 40, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong, he asked Job. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder your voice like his? (laughs) Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. He continues. I mean, just continues throughout the end of chapter 40 into chapter 41 and all through chapter 41. And we finally get to Job 42. And we hear Job's answer. Listen to what Job says. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. We cannot wrap our minds around who God is in totality. We can't fully comprehend all that He does. Man is humbled before the greatness of our God. And so Paul asks questions, just like God asked of Job, Paul asks us some questions for who has known the mind of the Lord, he says in verse 34. He, he said the same, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 16, Paul said, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have then given the mind of Christ. God has made us wise to his ways. He has made us wise unto salvation. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. No one outside of God giving him knowledge, giving him wisdom, giving him revelation of his plans. The second question Paul asks is, who has been the Lord's counselor? It's the same thing that Isaiah asked. Who, in Isaiah 40, 31, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Who can counsel God? Who can give God advice? Who among us? Who among us can sit down and give God Almighty advice? Who can sit down and look at God and be so bold as to say, Scripture is not fair. That's not the best way, God. I don't like that. God has made Himself known, and we have to submit to Scripture. I am not master over Scripture. You are not master over Scripture. Scripture is master over us, and we submit to His holy word. 
The third question he asks is, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? <laughs> who, who is it that has lived in such a way that God owes him anything? In Job 41.11, God asks Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine, God says. <laughs> I've not given God anything. I've not done anything that do, would demand that God save me. There's nothing that causes the Lord of creation to be in debt to me or to you. He is not indebted to us. I have no skill that He cannot do without. The sum of all of my assets and your assets, my abilities and your abilities, all combined of every one of us and everyone in the world, pale in comparison. It's a drop in the bucket to the depth of the riches and the mercy and the knowledge of God. We stand amazed. God we stand in awe of God he owes us nothing oh but listen Ephesians 1 through or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that God in Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places he owes us nothing but in Christ he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing wow <laughs> that should make you rejoice that should make you go would you please quit I want to stand and I want to sing I stand in awe of my God, and I'm ready to praise Him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You are awesome. You are holy, and I worship you and not any man, not any philosophy, nothing. I worship God, and I worship God alone because He is worthy. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's the great doxology of Romans eleven thirty six. 36. It's the same thing that Paul said in Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. God is the originator, the sustainer, and the goal of all things. And we worship him. We look to him. There's nothing that exists which he did not create. There's nothing that exists which he does not hold together. In him all things hold together. There is nothing that exists which does not exist for his glory. To him be glory forever. The Greek captures it by saying to him be the glory for all the ages. Into all of eternity. It is not just some glory. It is the glory. The supreme glory. We give him everything. He is highly and exalted. Muhammad Ali may have said, hey, you worship me. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He may have said, I'm the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. But I would remind you that Muhammad Ali passed from this life in 2016, feeble and frail. And we have the distant memory of a great boxer, but a man who met death. But our God reigns supreme. Our God is alive and reigning on his throne. He is saving men and women across the globe. He is making all things new in Christ. He has conquered death. He alone is God, and He is deserving of supreme glory from every man and every corner of creation. To Him alone be the glory. And if you have not trusted God, if you have not trusted Him, I would call you to do that today. Do you really have a better plan based on your wisdom? Do, do you really have a more expansive knowledge of yourself and creation and what you need? <laughs> Are you really living your life in a way that God would owe you something at the end of it? The answer is no to every one of those questions. You need Christ. And so I would call you, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, to call upon Him, to repent of your sins and trust in Him. 
to stand before God and to admit and say, God, I am a sinner and I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment, but God, I am looking to Christ and I am trusting him as Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Would you please save me? I would call you to do that today. And Christian, I would call you to realize that when you know and you see and you observe and you read and you behold right theology, that it leads you to a moment of great doxology, that you stand and you praise and you worship our great God. And then that catapults you into living for Christ. We're going to get there next week. Don't worry, we're not going into Romans 12 today. We'll get there next week. But I want you to wrap your minds around all that Paul has said. Because when you do, it catapults you into living for Christ. It has done that throughout Romans. It leads Paul to do that. He did that in my own life when I wrapped my mind around who God was and how feeble I am in comparison to him that I can't fully know him. I can't fully wrap my mind around all he is and how great he is and how awesome he is. It led me to live my life for him with abandon. I want to live for Christ and I want to go wherever he leads me. Why? Because when we behold our God seated on his throne, we long to live for him and for his glory. When we behold the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world and he died on the cross for our sins, we trust him in faith. When we know and we behold that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, we live by faith in him. And we realize and behold that he has defeated death and taken away its sting. We do not live in fear of death, but we live in faith of him. We know he is great and he is awesome and he is holy, so we live to worship him and we stand to worship him. We're about to do that, so get on your feet. We're standing and we're going to praise his name. We're going to worship him and how we live. We're going to worship him through song. We're going to worship him through lifting our voices and praise to him. We are going to stand and we are going to sing, Behold our God seated on his throne. Let's sing this morning.